You unlock this benefit with the key of Patreon. Beyond is another dimension. A dimension of thought. A dimension of speculation. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both waffle and substance. Of things and ideas. You've just crossed into the podcast zone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Trekking Through the Twilight Zone. This is where Julian and I are working through every episode of the Twilight Zone and giving our opinions on it. And we have come to the last episode of the first season, A World of His Own, um, in which a playwright is able to create his own characters into reality. And Julian, what did you think about this episode? Uh, I like this episode. Um, Mm. it, It does not amount to a lot. But it's got several things that are are very fascinating. Um, I've always liked, I mean, you know, I I do have this sort of superstitious uh, view that writing somehow affects reality. And I think that all writers have some version of this, um, that they sort of believe this in the back of their head in one way or another. Um, And then it's got this great meta fictional moment with uh, Rod (laughs) Serling at the end, which is... A throwaway gag, but, you know, 50 years ahead of its time. What about you? Yeah. No, I, I really like this episode. Uh, it was it was, it was, was a sort of like, it's not, it's again, it comes back to this idea of whimsy and it's not to be taken, like, seriously. It suffers from a couple of things that I've seen a lot in the series of, like, the shrewish wife. Hmm. Um, which is, a, I think, is a trope of the era more than anything. Um, but I, again, the cast in this are actually really good. I, I, I like uh, their interaction. I like the twist. I find the twist fun. Yeah. And yeah, and that meta ending with Rod Serling um, was was interesting. Actually, it was a really funny little moment that I thought was like, yeah, that's a a fourth wall breaking little thing that. I was not expecting so it's sort of mind-boggling right i mean you know it, it and it, it really and the ending narration rod serling has been revealed as another fictional character mm. uh you know the ending clearly establishes that like to the obviously there's no twilight zone continuity as such but the idea that if there is it's rod serling narrating you know all of us i mean the the end narration makes it crystal clear that all of the twilight zone is you know like occurring in a microverse inside gregory west's mind yeah no it's, <laughs> and i love the way even rod serling's delivery of that moment when he says um you know about sort of Gre- gregory west uh, in complete control uh, of the twi- in, in the Twilight Zone, apparently, like it's this sort yeah. of like, <laughs> even, it's even a surprise to Rod Serling. He's like, <laughs> all right, yeah, no, apparently he's in charge, not me. Um, yeah, I, it, it made me chuckle. It was a, it was a well done ending because and, and you know what I'm like, I, you know, I look at details and I'm like, oh, there's more to this. Mm. We'll go through the plot in a second, but there's a moment when I was looking for something extra. Um, and well, actually, no, we'll save that. We'll get to it. But basically, the plot of this film is uh, the plot of this episode is uh, Gregory White is um, he is a playwright, and it opens with him with a, uh, a lovely young uh, woman making drinks. They they are sort of having a romantic afternoon together, and then at the window of his study, you see a woman dressed fully in black, 
and it turns out that she is Gregory's wife. Uh, and she comes back in and she starts looking for this other woman that we don't know where she's gone. She's hidden. She's She's gone missing. And his wife starts to accuse him of, of uh, philandering and adultery. And she's determined to prove that he has been cheating on her. Uh, he then declares that he has been che- he has been cheating on her in a sense with a fictional character called Mary, and Mary is someone that he can materialize out of thin air by giving a description of her into his dictaphone, uh, and he can make her come and go. And by making to get rid of her, he just cuts the tape out and destroys it, and we find out there are other fictional characters in this world. Um. Yeah, so, I wonder what other characters there are. I mean, because really all we get is Mary, right, who's sort of the the mistress. Mm-hmm. And then the twist at the end is, you know, in fact, the wife is herself uh, a creation. Fictional. who's yeah. Right, who's been presumably running for quite some time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do, I do, yeah, you said about the shrewdest wife, I mean she's playing the Lois Lane role of like, you know, I'm going to find out Superman's secret, um, you know, which is necessary well, for the plot. But it's, it's more than that, though, because her leap from, you know, a, accusing him of adultery to you're talking silly. I'm going to get you committed for the rest of your life <laughs> so that yes. I can enjoy all of your investments is like that. Like, you know, yes. it happens. In, and. I hate that they do this because it, it, it's we've had this in several episodes again. We're like, why are you bloody married? Like, you clearly hate each other. Um, at least in this, he admits it. Like, there's this acknowledgement from him when he when he he reveals that she's fictional. He's like, yeah, no, I I made you what I thought I wanted. Mm-hmm. I made you too strong. I made you too you know independent and stuff and all these other things. And he sort of acknowledges it. Like, you know, I've made you not the nicest person like it's his fault um and so yeah it's the first time i'm like oh, okay that's interesting like you know it's not blaming the woman for being the shrew yeah. sort of character yeah i mean i feel like a, a million women just said you know uh the most unbelievable thing is that he would think that what he wants is a strong woman yeah well no it's, it's not a strong he says i've made you too strong it's the fact that like she clearly is constantly plotting to undermine him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, which is, yeah. that's the problem. Well, you know, you say, why would you get married? But, you know, I mean, you, you're not understanding the era. I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, love has nothing to do with marriage. And if you can't <laughs> suffer for the rest of your life with somebody who you slowly grow to hate, then what is marriage about? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a depressing thought. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I, I would like to think that it's something other than that. But I mean, I, I do think that there is this sort of. Yeah, I mean, she's a shrew, but there is this sort of like. We've been married a while. The, the love yeah. is clearly gone if there the, ever was. But one of the interesting the, the interesting things about his wife, when we get the reveal that she is also fictional, mm-hmm. it's the fact that she did come home early actually surprises him. And he's like, no, this is the first time you've gone against my will and the mm. and the and the will of what I've put into you. And that's and he's, he seems kind of interested by that. And I find that really interesting. Like, oh, she's gained a level of sort of like, 
I don't know, like meta independence. Like she is now beyond this thing of being a fictional character. Like she's gained her own sort of her own reality. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think there's a, another story there that would mm. add to the interest uh, to this character um, and sort of like how much autonomy do they have? What's life like for her when she leaves the house? How much of her personality has he did he write and how much evolved over presumably the years she's been around thinking she's his wife? Mm. Has she evolved? I mean, is this the first time that she's ever surprised him or evolved in any way? Yeah, I know that's it. It feels like there's, again, this is another one. We were talking about that with the mannequin one. Like, there's more to this world. I'm like, there's something about this relationship I really want to see. Like, there's something really interested in this that I want to explore. Um, because the, the, the other thing is, like, say he could create anyone, and he does. He creates an elephant in the hallway to stop her. Um. <laughs> As one does. Yeah, as you do. Um, But I like the fact as well that it takes quite a bit for him to tell her that she's fictional. Mm. Because, you know, she's threatening to sort of to leave him. She's threatening to go to a lawyer. She's threatening to just have him committed. Even when he proves it by having Mary appear and then disappear. And we'll get to that moment where Mary clearly is like, don't bring me back again. Does she have a continued consciousness? Yes, I thought about that too. It's sort of like, what is her experience of fading out? Clearly she's aware that she's faded out lots of times. She's, does she experience some pain? I mean, the destruction of the tape is done by throwing it in the fireplace. Mm. What is, right, what is going on? What sort of hell does her consciousness go to when it doesn't exist? Yeah, that's what I want. Like, you know, there's a the story where like, he bringing her back, like she slowly degrades each time until she's sort of in some sort of like psychotic rage about being imprisoned in this netherworld because like her consciousness is now about to spring into being. Um, like, yeah, there's so much more that I would love to explore in this concept. But one of the things is towards the end, he reveals a wall safe mm. and he pulls out of it an envelope and on it, it has his wife's name and it reveals that she is fictional now the point and this is obviously it comes into the end stinger but when he takes out that hers i spotted straight away there's another envelope in there yeah and yeah i i didn't know what was coming but i was like hang on he's I was like, he's created other people outside of this relationship. Like, mm-hmm. they're dropping something in here that's really interesting. Like, this is, it, it pays off more at the ending. But again, like, I, I, like you, I wonder if there's there's more of these people that he has created and sent off into the world and stuff. It, it's fascinating idea. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly <laughs> all of the Twilight Zone episodes are just characters that he's written, right? I mean, he is the sort of stand-in for Serling himself there. Um, he's the writer, the Grant Morrison writer that, yes. uh, you know, Animal Man appears to. And presumably he's written all of those other characters and all of the faults of the writing then in continuity can be attributed to this specific writer and they were all deliberate pointing to the fictional I'm I'm going too far, aren't I? 
no 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 because this is what i was seriously this is my head went the same place i was thinking like you know i thought of i would say the two great grand wizards of comics uh, grant morrison mm-hmm. and alan moore like they've both made um statements alluding to this about how <clears throat> you know uh, alan moore claims to have met john constantine in um in in a cafe in in um northampton mm-hmm. um and grant morrison has said how when he was writing the invisibles how it, it, it affected his life how you know he had that uh, fleshy disease or whatever it was and sort of mm-hmm. how that was affecting king mob at the same time like I've well, heard he, he, and he, he wrote about writing affecting reality yeah quite seriously and neil game has also described meeting death and constantine and a few creepy moments like that yeah and you know i'm sure there are others that have done the same it's weird how they're all sort of like british that i'm not saying there's anything to us just that maybe we take ourselves a little serious at times but um I, americans I'm... never take themselves seriously <laughs> <We're>... <laughs> um but i'm sure there are right you know is is this a thing i've never written fiction to the degree that i would say i've created characters that have a, a, in my even in my own head a a consciousness or a sort of a a, a path of their own you know the the, the 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 playwright gregory white in this he actually says like oh yeah there's been occasions when i'm writing and also the character refuses to do things and i've heard other mm-hmm. writers have said this like yeah we're writing this story and it just wouldn't go this way. I, you know, the characters were driving me a different way. I've never got, I've never been able to write to that level. And, you know, I, I find that fascinating that this is clearly a, a state of being that people have, have achieved. I mean, you know, I, as a writer, I, I identify and resist those kinds of statements <laughs> because I totally understand what it's like to hear the voice of a character or to, have a character feel utterly real to you. And sometimes mm. I think to be a decent writer, you have to inhabit scenes. I mean, I I've been traumatized by things that I've written because I've spent, you know, days killing my baby in my head mm. because it was something a character did or murdering somebody or something like this. And I messed up for how <laughs> much time I've spent in this action and in this world or this character. Having said that, I think what people are saying is just it's not that the characters real and they resist. It's just that you get to those moments where the twist is supposed to happen or the character is supposed to do this thing. And you're like, I can't figure out a way to get that in character. I can't, Mm. you know, that character is not going to do this. And you're like, okay, well, clearly there's a structural problem with the plot at that point that I have to go back and figure out. Um, to say the character is resisting is a little, that's a way to describe it, right? But it's like saying, you know, evolution wants something. I mean, it's not, it's a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, but literalizing it is fine. I mean, I do think that there is, there's no way that any writer doesn't have some part of their head that sort of, you know, believes this. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure. I, I you know, I say I'm not, I've never got that deep into doing fiction that I've ever got to that point. And in, in, in all honesty, it would probably scare me a little to do that. <laughs> what one thing I would say is that because I, I did really enjoy this episode, we'll get to this, you know, and so we'll call on the stinger in a moment. But um, one of the things is, and he calls out about how 
the point of what his ability is the ability to describe these people in such detail in a way mm. that yeah. makes them real. However, when he gives the description, it's like a police report. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a blonde woman, he's five six, he's wearing a blouse, and I'm like, this, this doesn't this isn't the kind of description that in, inhabits a reality or is ingrained into some sort of like, you know metafictional sort of um narrative it, it's the one down point of this story that really bothered me there was like the ability to just his his descriptive ability wasn't great yeah i mean i think that i have mixed views about that i mean i, I think it goes on right mm. but it's also so shot through with sort of playwriting sensibilities of that era um I mean, the way he describes her is so shot through with the era's uh, pejorative language and, you know, sort of the way a woman would be described. It's a very sexist, um, He 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 describes her as plain. Like, the the Mary character that he wants to spend his time with is like... Because he describes his wife as regal and beautiful and perfect, and yeah, she's a she's an attractive woman, but then he's like, yeah, I'm done with stunning beauty. I want someone plain and humble. And you're just like, why not just go and meet someone then? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's it's very. I, but I think that this this part of the problem, like for me, I'm more bothered by that whole process and the fact that he. I mean, he's got to use a dictaphone. In order to make it audio, right? And because he can, he can write something. I've seen this story before, where it's written on a piece of paper, and you can throw the piece of paper in the fire too. But you know, it's like okay, so it's 1960. Technology's changed, and the mm. dictaphone lets you voice this. I guess you could do a, a voiceover anyway. But I mean, that's a clever idea. But you know, his description is. It's like no matter how detailed the the plot makes it, no description in a minute is going to feel so powerful that it brings somebody yeah. into being, right? It's writing a novel. It's writing the entire play. It's, it's that kind of thing. And I think that it just feels too easy. And mm. there's no way around the fact that it feels too easy. No. I almost wish, and, and it's, this would both be a good and a bad, but like, I, I almost wish it was like it was a magic dictaphone. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, this is the Twilight Zone dictaphone. Right. Whatever than... I speak into here becomes reality. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. No, that um, works. I mean, but then it's not a metaphor for writing as much. No. And, you know, the Surling sort of thing at the end. Yeah, and I, I, I'm willing to give it the, the description thing because, like I say, because it runs at such a pace, it's only a short episode, you know, it's obviously a 26 minute episode, and you do get the great stinger at the end when Rod Serling appears on his desk to give oh. that exiting narration. And I think, oh, okay, this is him exiting. I honestly thought, like, having never seen this and not known a great deal, oh, he's exiting the season. This is him appearing on screen for his exit. And then when, when Gregory White says, oh, no, hang on, <laughs> and stops him. And then goes to the to the um, to the wall safe and pulls out an envelope with Rod Serling written on it. Like <laughs> I was like, that's pretty ballsy for a yeah for a sixties TV an early sixties TV show. No, I feel the same way. I mean, I I, I love that moment, <clears throat> um, and I, I do find myself wondering how 
like our reception of this is different. Um, <laughs> not only because these are preserved forever and we grow up hearing about the Twilight Zone as, as influential and good and um, and then going back, you have to remember it was written to be disposable, but also because Serling was doing product placement in the middle of these episodes. So, mm-hmm. you know, there there are segments that we don't include in these episodes anymore, where it's like as instead of the present day long commercials, they're Serling saying, you know, what I like is, you know, Winston cigarettes, you know, or, or whatever. <laughs> and, and then there's these, yeah, and then, you know, uh, they only cigarette you can smoke in the Twilight Zone, you know. And, you know, I mean, that was just a fact of how you, you did these things. And then also the sort of, as you pointed out, um, the sort of next episode closing narrations. Mm. So, you would have, as a viewer at the time, been more used to seeing Sterling kind of popping up, you know, and, and being on screen more than we are with the way we watch these now. No, that's a really good point. I suppose he would have been more of a visual, visual presence than, than so much. Yeah, that would make, I'm assuming that would actually probably have more impact as well then. Where you're like, yeah. oh, he's a fictional character, like, you know, because we just, I just know him as a, as a, as an individual because of this, sh- this show and stuff. And um, I could see how that could play out. And he usually in, in the versions that we have that have been passed down, he just shows up at the beginning on screen mm. for half a minute and then disappears, you know, uh, and the ending narration is always, I don't know that he's, does he appear on screen in other episodes mm. or do we just get the voiceover ending? I think he's appeared in a couple not often just a couple yeah yeah so it's rare for us to see him at the end even Mm. though it doesn't feel rare right it Mm. it feels like it it works yeah yeah he's got that very distinctive voice that 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 that, you know rings throughout the throughout the episodes anyway any any final thoughts about uh, a world of his own no it's it's good fun uh Mm. you know it's not uh a, a 10 out of 10 or something but it's it's good fun and that metafictional conceit at the end yeah. you know is, is one for the history books what about you yeah no it, it's good it's, it's an enjoyable episode it's a good sort of like little stinger for the end of the season um again again i get all of these like i like the setup but often the cast are usually pretty good and the way they're shot it's, it's like a play. This is all done in one room as well. I should mm. just highlight because the, the one thing I, did, I noted is it's about a playwright and it's set up like a play. Um, so I, I, I really enjoyed that. Like There's not multiple scenes. It's all in one room. It's locked off. It's very clever. So it, it, it feels well. This feels more well thought out than some of the ones we've talked about recently. So, um, no, I really enjoyed this as an ender. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, there we are. We are now at the end of season one of the twilight zone i hope you've enjoyed it and we're going to cap off this with a sort of a season recap and a quiver chat through so ladies and gentlemen thank you very much and we should talk to you on the next episode